0: Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And before we kick off our conversation today, I think it's appropriate that we start with a bit of a a health warning, a content warning. We're going to be discussing um, a really tragic case that's been in the news here in the UK recently, of um, a child serial killer who was a neonatal nurse called Lucy Letby, and um, who's been convicted of murdering um, dozens of, well, murdering and attempting to murder dozens of children under her care at a hospital here in in England. Um, It's going to be a really painful topic for everyone, difficult and upsetting, but particularly, I suppose, for some people who who might have young children or who have experienced tragedy, um, yeah, I just think it's worth flagging up. This is probably going to be quite a sensitive, um, upsetting uh, conversation, but an important one, we think.
1: Yeah, and particularly, we're going to try and do it in a sensitive and nuanced way because, you know, there's been a lot of shock horror coverage, hasn't there? I mean, I suppose from a journalist's point of view... You know, in some way, I'm sorry to say, this is a wonderful shock horror story, isn't it? Which is going to get a lot of attention and interest, which as a journalist, you know, you're drawn to the story.
0: Definitely. It's one of those things where there's a kind of the slightly morbid, macabre nature of journalism. You you know, because, you know, if you put a story about a neonatal nurse murdering babies on the front cover, you're going to see a decent a decent uh, number of sales of your newspaper um because the people want you know are, are drawn almost against their own instincts they're drawn to these kind of horrifying stories um
1: and so as a result it tends to get painted in incredibly black and white terms you know there are the heroes the the noble heroic doctor who was who is uh, blowing the whistle there are mm. the villains not just let be herself but the terrible cowardly hospital managers and yeah. so on it's it all gets
0: incredibly black and white doesn't it it does it does and i think there's a there's a tendency which we'll talk about later as you say to divide people into these two camps which somewhat obscures some of the messy complicated painful reality of what happens in cases like this but it's particularly close to home for you of course as a you know admittedly now semi-retired, but, you know, spent your career as a neonatologist looking after premature babies in a hospital unit very similar to the one that be worked on?
1: Well, absolutely. And, you know, it, it just strikes at the heart, I think, for anybody who works in this particular arena, because, you know, it has to be said that the neonatal intensive care unit is a very unusual uh, kind of environment. Uh, to be honest, it was one that most of the time I absolutely loved. There was something extraordinary about this environment. Um, and in particular, what I loved most about it, partly was the fact that you were seeing desperately sick children recover and do incredibly well, because in fact, the vast majority of, of sick babies who are admitted to in the intensive care unit recover and go home and live healthy normal lives and it's an immensely rewarding and positive uh kind of area incidentally it's one of the big differences between neonatal intensive care and adult intensive care (laughs) because the sad truth is that adult intensive care has far far worse outcome statistics and it's extremely common and routine for adults to die in an intensive care unit Whereas actually for babies to die in an intensive care unit, in a neonatal unit, is, is really very unusual. Um, so it's a very rewarding area to work, but it's also one which is utterly based on teamwork. And so one of the things I really enjoyed about my working environment <clears throat> was working as part of a multidisciplinary team, you know, working very closely with neonatal nurses, with with other doctors, with specialists in different areas, with physiotherapists and speech therapists and, and a whole load of other people. And so um, that teamwork, collaborating together, trusting one another, uh, learning from one another, discussing problems together. I loved that, you know, helping the team, facilitating the team, mutual respect and friendship and so on. And, and so the possibility that a member of the team, a trusted member of the team is actually a psychopathic killer it is is so horrific that um, it
0: just strikes at the heart of, of, of what the whole enterprise is about. Hmm. Shall we do a, a kind of summary of the case for people who haven't been following it closely um, to kind of explain what happened, and in particular how, um, as we'll come on to talk about, you know, that she could have been stopped a lot earlier if if various people in the hospital had had got their act together and had listened because there were concerns about her. From very early on. Yeah, one thing I think just as a kind of
1: background which is perhaps helpful for people to know and understand and that is that <clears throat> when neonatal intensive care units started <clears throat> and actually the unit I worked at at UCH was one of the first in the world, um, the standard plan we used was actually to nurse a whole number of very sick babies together in a bay and so you would often have three or four or even more, very sick babies, all uh, together in a bay, each of the nurses, each of the babies would have a nurse, usually a single nurse, dedicated to their care. But what tended to happen was that because all these babies were being cared for together, everybody was monitoring and supporting one another. And so one of the nurses would look over and say, oh, you seem to be having a bit of a difficulty there. Can I give you a hand? Uh, the, and there was a whole kind of camaraderie and back chat often going on between the nurses and p- often parents as well and other people who are all there in the room. What han- tended to happen in neonatal intensive care unit is for various, mainly control of infection reasons, um, increasingly the care of babies has moved into isolated cubicles where you have one nurse and one baby alone with a, cubi- in, a in a cubicle. And I've always felt rather un, uneasy about that, not because of the possibility of a psychopathic killer, but just because it felt psychologically quite unhealthy for a nurse spending hours and hours alone with a baby, unable to leave, because you know the life of the baby literally depends moment to moment on on the attention and the monitoring of the nurse. Um, and But neonatal nurses are are a very unusual a uh, breed of nurses. And in some ways, I often think of them as a kind of elite core, because they do a lot of extra training. It's a very sophisticated kind of nursing. And the life of their little patient literally depends from moment to moment on their ability to monitor, to spot problems, to uh, deal with, with uh, the, the technology and so on. So it's an unusual kind of nursing. And it's hard to think of other areas of medicine where there is such intensity of life support provided in isolation by one by
0: by one uh, health professional. and this, as we'll see, kind of strikes at the heart of of why concerns targeted on let be so quickly because you know unlike an ordinary hospital ward where there might be ten or twenty patients and multiple nurses coming and going all night long here. They say, you know, the, the, the first child she murdered, this is in June 2015, you know, she comes onto the night shift. Um, this child was born six weeks premature, but was, you know, only a few days old, but seemed to be healthy, um, handed over to, to Letby. You know, she has sole care of, of him for the duration of her shift. And the child um, begins to deteriorate within 30 minutes of her coming on shift and is dead within 90 minutes. That's right, and then this sad litany just repeats,
1: um, yeah. and uh, over the over the space of of relatively few
0: weeks. Yeah. So she tries um, to kill that child, that first child. They just they're not named in the court. They're just child A, child B. So child B is actually the the twin um, sister of child A, um, and she is uh, let be injected child B with air about twenty eight hours apparently after murdering the twin brother, but this child actually um, survives after being resuscitated.
1: That's right. And then just a few days later, a five-day-old baby dies under her care. And seven days later, another baby dies um, again uh, under her care. And all of these deaths happen at night. They happen uh, with, let be is the is the person alone with them? And the interesting thing is that as soon as June, so as soon as these events have happened in June, 2015, um, one of the senior consultants is suspicious. This, this, this just doesn't happen. Important to say again, this is a relatively small unit. It's not a major referral unit. Uh, Our unit at UCH was a referral unit that received the sickest babies from all over London. And on average, as I remember uh, uh, at the time I was working there, we on average would have one baby would die a month. And, and they were nearly always the sickest, most desperately ill babies who, who were admitted. And um, the idea that at a relatively small unit, four babies die within matters of days and every one of them has the same nurse looking after them inevitably I think raises suspicion so it's interesting right from that point
0: there are concerns particularly and... as the, the child's the children don't have any obvious kind of medical emergency that caused them to collapse they just have this strange kind of mottling discoloration on the skin um and it's later emerged that they they find um uh air inside some of their bowels so it turns out she has been injecting air through their kind of feeding tubes or through their IV um, tubes, uh, do you want to explain just briefly why is that so so dangerous? Could that ever happen by accident?
1: Yeah, so this is called air embolus, and it's been recognised for many decades. Um, so basically, you know, rather similar to any kind of plumbing system, this plumbing system in the body only works when there is absolutely no air in the system. You know, if you get a bit of air into a central heating system, it can bung up the whole works, and it's exactly the same in the, in the circulation and so it's it whenever you're putting in an intravenous line and 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 putting fluids in into directly into an intrave- into the circulation all health professionals all nurses are are told and taught about the risks of air embolus they're taught how to flush all the equipment with fluid to make sure uh, expel all the bubbles and then the way you connect up everything is all designed to prevent the possibility of air ever getting Accidentally sucked in, and so with proper neonatal intensive care, uh, air embolus is vanishingly rare because everybody knows the rules. All the equipment is designed to prevent it happening. And although it's one of those theoretical things that might happen, um, it it only happens incredibly rarely. And actually, in my entire career looking after thousands of very sick babies, I can remember one incident of serious air embolus, which happened because of a failure of the equipment, tragically, um, which meant that completely accidentally large volumes of air were, were, uh, entered a baby's circulation. That baby was resuscitated. And, uh, you know, we informed the parents and it was a very painful and difficult situation, but thankfully the baby did well. Um, So, Yes, it's
0: known about, but it's vanishingly rare. Hmm. And so after four of these tragic cases, as you say, shockingly common for a small unit that might only see a handful of deaths a year ordinarily, um, are these two consultant doctors on the unit kind of raise the alarm and they do a kind of medical review of ch- child A, B, C and D. Um, and they and they check the files and they find out that let is the only kind of common factor between them. She's the only same nurse who was on duty all four nights. Um, and, and so they report these to the hospital's committee for serious incidents, which is, I guess, responsible for kind of collating safety and, and making recommendations. But they actually classify them as a medication error rather than as a serious incident involving an unexpected death. Do you want to just explain the significance of that? Yeah, so this, this in retrospect, is, is
1: a catastrophic failure, which... Um if it had been properly undertaken um, could have prevented any further death so so the nhs has uh, procedures brought in because of disasters in the past um that whenever there's an unexpected death uh, this has to be reported to hospital management and there is then a whole procedure which has to be followed in fact it's not even an unexpected death it's an unexpected it's, it's called a serious unexpected unanticipated incident it is some sudden event catastrophic event which may or may not lead to death which was completely unanticipated and and what happens is as a, as a whole review procedure is started a, a series of experts are called in usually internal experts who are asked to then go through the entire notes different disciplines and then a detailed report is produced for each individual death followed by uh, what steps are we going to take to prevent this happening in the future? So uh, I have very little doubt that if each of those four deaths had been properly documented as an unanticipated uh, serious incident, and if four separate reviews had been carried out by whole teams of doctors and nurses, um, I think it's very likely that um, concerns about let me would have been raised at that point and And flagged up and highlighted, and to describe these sudden deaths as a medication error again is to me utterly bizarre because because even if it was a medication error that if a medication error leads to the death of a child, that has to be thoroughly investigated. i mean it would be a catastrophe, but it has to be completely identified and 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 checked, and all the rest so um it was an astonishing error and
0: failure and i have no doubt that subsequent uh, reviews are going to highlight that and tragically as we go into august 2015 Let be continues um, she kills child e again injecting air into her into his bloodstream and the very next day she attempts a different method of using insulin to try and poison that child's baby brother child f but that child survived Uh, In September, she tried to murder another child by feeding them an excessive amount of milk. The child survived but was left very severely disabled. And then in October, she killed child I, again, by injecting a large amount of air into the stomach. Um, So we've now gone, you know, three, four months, and this neonatal unit is seeing an astonishing number of either deaths or kind of close close calls, um, which prompts... um, uh, we're relying, by the way, we should say, a, a very good investigation by the Sunday Times newspaper, which has done a really good job digging in through the re- records of the hospital to kind of expose some of the failures to stop Letby. Um, and they they re- report that um, the same day as Child I, this is in October, the last child we mentioned, uh, the nurse and ward manager responsible for all the staff on the neonatal unit conducted their own review, and like the consultant, the paediatricians earlier, this nurse manager notices that Letby was the only member of staff on shift. For all for the deaths, and she and she informs um, uh, the doctors, and, and ultimately it rises by November to uh, uh, the hospital's kind of senior manager. So the hospital's medical director, who's kind of second most senior um, kind of person in charge of the hospital.
1: That's right, and so. Um, you know senior administrators are now involved and this is where unfortunately again in retrospect um there are a whole series of uh, errors failures to to recognize it and I, I i think again although in retrospect this looks completely uh unacceptable i think i have some sympathy for the people involved you know the suggestion that there is a psychopathic killer uh, you know the evidence against Letby is entirely circumstantial, and the point is made that actually the cause of death in these different sudden collapses was different. Um, so it's not like there is some very clear single m- means that she's using uh, to kill babies But she's actually highly sophisticated, highly clever at covering her tracks, um, and I suspect, you know, in retrospect that she's been learning from other well-publicized cases of serial murders and so on of people in you know, many of which have been well-publicized and is and is um in is carrying out a very sophisticated campaign so you know to a hospital director the idea that there is somebody incredibly sophisticated and subtle who's working as a neonatal nurse who's got excellent everybody says is the one of the best nurses on the unit and in fact Um, is a psychopathic killer. You can see that, um, you know, I'm going to need a lot of evidence before I uh, call in the police, before, you know, we accept that we've been hiring and supporting and protecting a psychopathic killer in our midst. Um, so, So, you know, this is such a horrific possibility. And yet, in retrospect, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming.
0: Hmm. And so as we move into 2016, um, the and the doctor who first became suspicious of Letby, who still kind of had his doubts, carried out a, a kind of a thematic review into the series of deaths and collapses on, on his unit with the help of an outside consultant from another hospital. Uh, and they produce a kind of report which includes a kind of appendix of staffing. And again, once more notes that only Letbe was on shift for each of the deaths and collapses and that all of them happened between midnight and 4 a.m. And let be only ever works night shifts. Um, so they're still remaining suspicious, um, but their hospital management basically refuses to accept that it's possible. I mean, just that, incidentally, be...
1: yeah. Just incidentally, I've seen that. Uh they produced a kind of spreadsheet. Yeah. And they had all the deaths on one row, and they had all the staff who were on duty at the time on another row, and they put an X Uh, where it happens and there are just the odd x's spread across the staff and then under the let be column every single one x x x x x x x i mean it is utterly astonishing when you just look at that spreadsheet that tells you all you need to know
0: at a moment's glance um and and that's what they've compiled yeah but but again the kind of hospital management rebuff this and say you know that's not um you know, you're being unfair, you're victimizing her. It's just a coincidence. Um, however, uh, and, and um, you know, there's this one shocking moment I just found kind of the bureaucracy here the, where the, um, these, the, the nursing, the neonatal ward manager and these doctors email the hospital's chief nerve and ask for, a, for help and for an urgent meeting and was basically ignored it took 56 days to get a meeting with the with this kind of chief hospital manager um and so eventually in april um let B is moved from night to day shifts um by this again the staff and the unit who are starting to get suspicious she's told it's because you know support her well-being because she's been involved for so many of the collapses um and two days after the switch um Letby then att- tries to murder these twin baby boys, one with insulin, one injected with air. Both survive, but actually these become a kind of cornerstone of evidence because in the trial that follows, eventually they were able to show that the deaths and collapses followed. Letbe's switch from night shift to day shifts. You know, when she was on nights, they only ever happened in the nights. And then when she's moved to day shifts, there were no more deaths, collapse in the nights, only happened in the day.
1: Yes, so... I mean, just to fast forward, because uh, I mean, it, it, it becomes a sort of painful litany. Yes. But I, I think one of the sad things that then becomes apparent is, that, is that, that it starts to be seen as a witch hunt by all the doctors. So, all seven pediatricians who are connected with the unit have clearly been talking about one another and saying, We are just, compl- we have absolutely no trust in this nurse. And unfortunately, the senior nurses and staff perceive this as a witch hunt against a particular nurse. And they're saying, well, you're doctors, what right of you to be singling out a nurse? This is a matter for nursing mm. uh management and nursing supervision. And we as nurses are not that concerned about me So um it, it becomes mired in a kind of us versus them uh and 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 sadly in retrospect, the hospital management then take the side of the senior nurses. Uh Letby takes out a grievance procedure against the doctors And um, the hospital management forced the doctors, compel them to apologise to Lebby for making allegations about her behaviour.
0: Yeah, and there's these kind of excruciating emails and and meeting minutes that the the media have dug up where, you know, the the doctors are kind of forced to make this weasel word, you know, I'm sorry for the stress you've been experiencing in the last year when they clearly still believe she is at least potentially uh, a serial killer um but thankfully shortly after this um the last the last child i think um she she kills is in june 2016 um um she is eventually um uh moved to a, a different um well i think as far as i understand that the the decision was made that she needed to be supervised on the unit but they just didn't have the staffing to have another nurse follow her around and so to to square that circle she was moved into a kind of administrative clerical post that wasn't actually treating patients and mysteriously and miraculously no more children die after that
1: that's right so um you know a year down the line they manage uh, to move her into a a, a post where she has no direct care for babies uh, you know under some kind of pretense they're not they're not able ultimately to say we think you're killing babies, but they, they do a pretense. Um and and then gradually um the police are called in and the whole thing unravels. Yeah. And um so I I think, you know, it's it's worth just stepping back and saying no doubt there is going to be a
0: great deal of uh, fallout from this case. Well the government have announced there's going to be a formal inquiry, aren't they? such a serious case
1: that's right and i am sure all the actions of the people involved are going to go through uh with a fine tooth comb um and one of the questions inevitably is um first of all i think it's important to keep some kind of sense of perspective you know because uh, if you think not just in the uk but across the world there must be, I think, literally hundreds of thousands of highly trained health professionals working as neonatal nurses. And yet this is the first case, identified case of a psychopathic killer amongst the neonatal nurses, you know, since, well, in a neonatal intensive care unit, since I'm aware of it ever happening before, you know, been going for 30, 40 years. So, So I think... It is important to keep some kind of sense of perspective, but tragically, I think often what happens is, is kind of unintended consequences. When new regulation is brought in, as I'm sure it will be following this case, the one is concerned that the eventual aim is actually that it has unintended adverse consequences.
0: Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. But you can understand, can't you? Like, I totally take your point about the incredible rarity of of people like Let Be and the fact that, you know, every year, as you say, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of babies are born prematurely worldwide and looked after in hospital and receive excellent care and go home healthy and happy to their parents. But you can understand the kind of horror parents or particular or any patient who's going to spend a time in hospital must feel when they realize that these strangers that you have no choice over you are thrust into their care you're completely vulnerable dependent on them getting the medication right and it's one thing to worry about someone making a mistake getting you know giving you the wrong dose of morphine or whatever but the idea that there might be someone using their medical training to harm you or your children while they're in hospital is is absolutely chilling
1: it, it certainly is. And, and it's not just parents. I mean, <clears throat> every health professional, you know, the idea that someone in your team might not be what they seem to be, mm. um, but might actually be a psychopathic killer. That is that is so utterly horrifying and terrifying that um, it, it's almost impossible to to get your head around it. I th- I think a helpful <clears throat> analogy, which, again, is hard to understand, but actually much more common, is what used to be called Munchausen by proxy and is now called factitious illness. And this is where a parent caring for a child deliberately harms them in order to uh, create the appearance of a medical illness and then takes the child to hospital, saying, "My child's desperately sick, you know there's something wrong with them but the but it's actually the parent who has harmed the child and <clears throat> this unfortunately is much more common it's um it is well recognized to all pediatricians it's something that pediatricians are always alert to and are thinking about the possibility it's rare, but it happens and the the psychological mechanisms underlying factitious illness are thought to be that it's basically a form of attention seeking Um, and that the the, the, the parent gets some kind of positive gain from the fact that their child is desperately sick Um, and that they have then been a, a hero parent in rescuing them from the brink. So it's a kind of very perverted kind of reward mechanism. Um, and yet it's something that, even though it sounds inconceivable,
0: actually a significant number of parents fall prey to. And as I understand it, that there's also been some cases of this factitious illness kind of syndrome, whatever you want to call it, among health professionals, you know, doctors and nurses who have deliberately made their patients, to, taking them to the point of death with, you know, doses of drugs or some other things so that they could then swoop in and do a dramatic resuscitation and it's all about the attention and the thrill of bringing someone back from the brink and tragically as well as being you know horrendously abusive there have also been times when the doctors have kind of pushed the patients too far and and the patient has actually died rather than being able to be resuscitated.
1: Yes and though we know absolutely nothing about Nurse Letby's uh motivation i think in retrospect uh it seems quite likely that it was some kind of incredibly perverted um attempt to gain attention because she was the perfect nurse because she was the nurse who was there when the patient collapsed she was the nurse who would be in prime position leading the resuscitation attempts and she would no doubt do it with great immaculate skill and everybody would see how good she was at resuscitation and what a brilliant nurse she was and all the rest and i suspect you know that it's it's as banal as that she was trying to impress other people by uh, what a perfect nurse she was so as i said before one of the things i'm concerned about is unintended consequences of any movements. I mean, it's clear that everybody's going to be uh, clamoring for what safeguards can we enter, can we we bring. I think an obvious thing would be to have continuous video monitoring going on in every intensive care cubicle. I I suspect that that is going to come. And immediately it raises questions about, you know, privacy, um, you know, Uh, everything being monitored, recorded, reviewed, because it's only worth doing if you could then go back and review it. Um, You know, how many people are going to be sitting there staring at screens? Are we going to use AI to try and, you know, review videos and identify suspicious behavior and so on? So I I suspect that that may well happen. I think an interesting parallel, a tragic parallel, is Harold Shipman, who was a, a GP in uh, in the north of england um there are striking parallels because he was again regarded as the nicest friendliest most competent gp in the area everybody said he was the best gp to have uh, and yet he was a psychopathic killer who was murdering older people with huge dose of morphine going to their homes injecting them then documenting what happened and again what his motivation was never really came out he never confessed to anything and I think a lot of it was just power he was on a a power um kind of high of exerting power over people's lives as well as some financial irregularities Uh, but following the Shipman case there was a huge review and it meant to changing practice and and tragically from my perspective that it has led to a significant worsening of the care that dying people receive so previously what happened is that every GP carried in their little medical bag uh, morphine um amples of morphine so that if they did a house call and came across someone in absolute agony and severe distress they could instantly provide powerful pain relief quite safely um You know, no intention to kill, but just providing good um, pain relief. Uh, What's happened following shipment is that GPs are banned from carrying morphine to house calls, so they never carry it on their person. Um, And that means that if a person is in extreme pain, it may take hours or days to arrange for the special prescription to be obtained and all the controls and but the second thing is that gps have become much more cautious about prescribing morphine because they're worried that their actions will be questioned because of shipment and as a result my observation is that a lot of people with terminal illness and painful conditions in the community receive less than adequate pain relief um and all because of one psychopathic killer who has uh, tragically um, impacted on the routine
0: care that doctors can give to patients. Hmm. And you're concerned that potentially in our in our kind of anguish and, and horror after the let be case something might might change which we don't which down the line actually means that babies are looked after less well subsequently.
1: Yes, and that nurses will be so f- worried that they're being constantly monitored question that their normal actions of doing the best for their babies and comforting parents and um, just being will become impeded because of the video monitoring that's going on because of the questioning, you know, and that particularly when any unexpected death happens, there will be huge paranoia investigations, questionings, which might actually impede um, the nature of the quality of care that is being given. So, I think one just has to be very sensitive about unintended consequences, and and that's why maintaining a sense of perspective, making sure that the the cure is not worse than the
0: problem that we're trying to solve. And perhaps paradoxically, painfully, we might have to accept that you know a tiny fraction of the population are you know, complicated, broken, potentially psychopathic individuals, a small number of them will end up in caring professions, and a smaller number of them will end up killing people. And there is no real way to prevent that without damaging the care for the 99.999% of other people and who who are not being looked after by these individuals.
1: It's a desperately painful and difficult situation, isn't it? Because it's not just health professionals, of course, there are many other professionals. I mean, there's been huge uh, issues in the uk about the metropolitan police and rogue police officers <clears throat> there have been cases of pilots who've had suicidal tendencies and and actually brought down planes um so i i think there is something about the reality of human relationships that is that we are called to, to trust strangers sometimes we trust strangers with our lives we do it every time we get into a, a train or a a plane, even a bus. So um, there's there's nothing fundamentally uh, wrong about trusting a stranger with your life. But obviously, we are totally dependent on the supervision, oversight, training, monitoring of, of professionals in all spheres. And um, we need to find ways of <clears throat> enhancing trustworthiness. Hmm.
0: And as we come to an end, then, I guess it's worth spending a few minutes talking about how we think about this case and, and the, the kind of bigger questions, as we talked about, of trust and, in in professionals. Um, as Christians, you know, how do we cope with the reality that this person who on the outside looked like a, a lovely, friendly, smiley nurse who devoted her life to looking after sick babies... Was actually inexplicably, for no gain to herself, that we can really understand, murdering them one by one. Utterly callous, you know. She, you know the reports of the trial, so that she showed basically kind of very little emotion throughout the the trial. Um, and the, all that we can really flush out as a as a as a potential motive was that there was some signs that she might have had a thing, had a crush on one of the other doctors, and was trying to kind of impress them or, or gain his attention. It just feels so banal and so tragically pointlessly evil and yet you know dozens of lives of parents lives have been ruined by their children being murdered or, or almost killed indeed and and it, it is deeply painful
1: isn't it to reflect on it and and of course an obvious psychological reaction is to is to other the murderer is to say oh well of course they're just a complete freak a monster a monster They're not really human. They're subhuman. The rest of us are all decent, nice human beings, but there are a few monsters out there. And so, yes, it's obvious that at one level she is a a, a complete outlier. She's a highly intelligent, sophisticated, psychopathic killer, uh, masquerading as a caring professional. But on the other hand... um, that kind of othering, I, I think, is not helpful, and I think this is where the, a Christian understanding of the fall and the consequences of the fall um, is a much more troubling but realistic understanding. You know, it the problems ultimately are the problems of the human heart, and and the fact that the human heart is capable of great evil. And that, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to uh, suggest that any of us (laughs) is at risk of suddenly turning into a psychopathic killer. But this banality of evil means that actually all of us do have a potential for for creating great evil and and to try to deny that possibility, um,
0: I think, is unhelpful and unrealistic. And that phrase, the banality of evil, that was coined by um, Hannah Arendt, who is a famous Jewish writer and journalist while she was covering the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the architects of the Holocaust and, and you know, was brought several decades after the war was captured by Israel and brought to trial in Jerusalem. And, and ultimately was this kind of dowdy, spectacled bureaucrat, you know, who wasn't this kind of ghoulish monster and yet had been directly responsible for the deaths of upwards of six million human beings. And, and and I guess what she was trying to draw out, which is a really helpful insight, I think, for us as Christians as well, is that, as you say, you don't need to have be a kind of demonic, devilish figure to be capable of great harm and great suffering. And actually, the, the capacity for evil lies within ordinary people. I mean, I'm always struck when you read media coverage of almost anyone who does something awful, particularly in murderers, there's often quotes from their neighbours, their friends, their family, their colleagues, who say, you know, it's almost a trope now, it's so common. They were such an ordinary person. They were unremarkable. They were normal. They were very nice. They chatted to me over the garden fence. You know, I used to borrow their their lawnmower. Um, and, you know, Let Be is, you know, those quotes about how she was seen as Miss Perfect. You know, she had this smiley, blonde, friendly young nurse, um, you know who would send flowers to, 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 to patients to the parents of her patients and 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 there's this kind of like sense of incredulity that lies mm. behind that coverage because they people just cannot wrap their heads around how mm. someone could simultaneously be the worst child serial killer in british history and yet also be on the surface at least a kind of smiley normal ordinary nurse but actually, Christians shouldn't be shocked by that, because we know that you can't divide people into two classes of good and bad. Yeah. And
1: are not we seeing other tragic examples of that in Ukraine and with Russian soldiers? I mean, you know, <clears throat> Russian soldiers have been guilty of the most horrendous war crimes, terrible torture, abuse, executions and all the rest and yet you know are we really implying that every russian soldier is is a kind of monster i mean i've no doubt that many of the people who were involved in those war crimes actually back in their villages and towns in across russia would have been thought of as nice family people and you know good lads and all the rest so there is this <clears throat> tra- tragic and terrifying capacity for evil in the human heart and I think arguably this is something that Christian theology uh, is is a gift that it gives to the world because I think almost uniquely Christian theology grapples with the nature of evil um, in a way that uh, no other thought form in, uh, does. I, I think there is a, a profundity about the concept of the fall um, and the ubiquity of evil, the the reformers um, talked about this phrase of, of, of total depravity. And that's a phrase which many, many people react against. But what they were implying was not that everybody was as depraved as they possibly could be. That was not what total depravity means. What total depravity means is that there is not a single aspect of human uh, behaviour, of human life, which is in not some sense contaminated by evil everything we do is contaminated and and that is both a horrifying prospect which many atheists and liberals would would resist uh, but it, but i think it's a profoundly realistic understanding of of the all pervasive uh, nature of evil and and then ultimately of course christianity focuses all this in the mystery of the cross that uh, that god himself enters into this utter uh, meaninglessness of suffering and and takes it into himself so so i would want to say yes there is deep tragedy here and yes we weep with parents whose babies died at the hand of a murderer we weep with all those who have been affected by this and and yet there is a sense in which um we bring this to a God who who doesn't explain the reality of evil, but who enters
0: into it and redeems it in his own person. Yeah. And ultimately there's hope as well, because not only are, you know, all people are, are fallen, but all people are also made in, in the image of a good God. And that explains why even someone as clearly evil as Lucy Letby could still be, you know, a good daughter, a good friend, you know aspects of the goodness of god were still baked into her because she was still made in god's image even though she was entirely corrupted by by sin um but that also as you say ultimately there's hope because we're all we're all fallen we're all depraved but but ultimately there was one who was not in the person of jesus and 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 his and his plan is not simply to you know the 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 economy of 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 God is not simply to divide people into good and bad and take the good people to be with him in a better future. But God's plan is to, you know, replace our hearts entirely and to bring us back to new, raise us up to new life with new, new bodies that are not corrupted by the effects of the fall. And with new hearts, you know, like that passage about, you know, I'll take out your hearts of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And, and actually that's what I find most encouraging is not that people like let me are going to burn in hell, but it's mm. that actually God's great plan in this in his perfect new creation that's coming is that there aren't going to be any people like let at all
1: yeah but there's also something that's just occurred to me which is really again uh, an amazing and in some sense outrageous aspect of the christian faith but just imagine that you are the prison chaplain in the prison where Letby has been admitted you know what are you going to say to her um and are you going to say you deserve to rot in hell well, you're not going to minimise the realities of what she's done, but aren't you going to offer to her the possibility Mm -hmm. of forgiveness, the possibility Mm -hmm. of restoration, even for a mass murderer? So, And that, to many people, is utterly unacceptable, utterly Scandalous. uh, scandalous. And
0: yet, I think that is the scandal of Christian Grace. Yeah. There's this profound quote you told me about before when we were preparing for this from the the Russian kind of dissident and writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn who says this the line between good and evil runs not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either but right through every human heart which I don't know if you know was he a christian but it's a profoundly christian idea isn't it yes he was he he was a very significant
1: uh, you know he he was tortured uh, spent i think years decades in being tortured under stalin and he retained uh, a christian conviction christian faith and was a great voice uh, in in the collapse of the soviet union and so on so he's expressing in a very profound sense this this christian understanding that of the pervasiveness of evil and yet you know he was also a witness to the redemptive possibilities of the gospel yeah
0: well let's draw our conversation to a close there thanks so much um dad it's been really um challenging and upsetting but i think hopefully a useful conversation to have um in the midst of the kind of questions that people have reading about the the horrible the horrible case um Mm -hmm. of lucy Letby. um i hope people enjoyed listening to that um as always you can find lots of other things to to whet your appetite in terms of theology and ethics to read and listen to and watch on on dad's website that's johnwyatt.com. and you can get in touch with us by email um molad at uk, um, uh, and we'll be uh, doing another one of our q a episodes soon so don't forget to be sending in your questions um uh, but otherwise yeah we'll uh, we'll speak to you next week bye-bye